Good morning. Um, the reading today is taken from the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 3. I'll be reading from verses 1 through 13. The passage is uh, printed on page 6 of the bulletin if you would like to follow along. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. All right. Happy President's Weekend, by the way. Uh, Good to have a a decent-sized crowd, even on a holiday weekend. Let's pray together. Let's ask for God's help. Even as we read this passage, God, we're reminded that there's this idea of revelation and insight and understanding that we cannot have unless you give it to us. That we can't understand the mind of God and we cannot understand the word of God without the power of your spirit and not just understand, but to submit to, or to receive, or to, to allow to change our lives. That too, we need help for. So would you come and we're coming with, uh, open hands and open hearts to you. And would you give us help and let this word change us? We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. The passage we're looking at today is about a mystery. And who doesn't like 
a good mystery. Who's not fascinated by mystery? There are historical mysteries, of course. Who killed Dr. King? Who killed JFK? We saw a few TV specials about these mysteries a few weeks ago during those anniversaries. There are fun and funky mysteries. Is the Loch Ness Monster real? How about Bigfoot? Some of you saying, no, that's no mystery. I saw Bigfoot recently at Rock Creek Park. No. The Apostle Paul here is talking about a mystery. He's talking about his personal calling to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And he describes his ministry with this word mystery, which he uses four times in this short passage. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 6. Verse 9, you can see them there. But the key to understanding the passage is this. Every way that we've used mystery up to this point, erase it from your heads. (laughs) Because what it means in the Bible and the way that Paul in the New Testament uses it is something different, almost opposite of the way we normally use this word mystery. You see, for Paul... A mystery is always a solved mystery. For Paul, it's, it's uh, something that has now been revealed, but it used to be hidden. Notice how in verse 5 we're told that this mystery was not made known to people in other generations in the past, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. And Paul explains his calling in verse 9 this way, to, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past were kept hidden by God or in God, but is now made plain. In other words, we used to be in the dark, but now we're standing in the light. We didn't know it, but now we do because God revealed it. That's what Paul means. But what is it? What is this mystery? What is this mystery? We're going to look at what this passage says, sort of an autobiographical passage where Paul talks about his personal ministry and calling to the Ephesian church. And we're going to follow these couple points. First, the mystery of reconciliation. Secondly, the mystery of grace. Third, the mystery of the church. And fourth, the mystery of suffering. First, the mystery of reconciliation. Paul tells us straight up, what is this mystery? Verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's continuing on in what we studied last week, which was his explanation. That the great news of Jesus is that he, by the power of his cross, his death and his resurrection, has destroyed the walls of division between Jews and non-Jews. And in fact, between all races and ethnicities. Not that God destroys ethnicity, he destroys hostility. Because he destroys the roots of superiority, you see, by his grace, 
which tells us we're all the same because we're all sinners. And if you're in Christ, you're still the same because you're all saved by grace and grace alone. Paul describes the new unity that's shared in the gospel. He does this really by making up words in the ancient Greek. And you can't really see it here in the English translation, but what he does is he takes a preposition that means together with, and he starts slapping it onto words. Uh, so sort of kind of like how we talk about co-pilots and co-captains. Uh, Paul glues this preposition onto a few words. And the result is verse 6. That through the gospel and the, that the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians are co-heirs as children of the Father. And they are co-bodies, uh, members of one another like body parts. They're co-partners and the promise they have in Christ Jesus. They share the same blessings. They share the same status. All those who trust in the same Father. Which verse 12 emphasizes again in telling us about the equal access that all people in Christ have to the Father. That in Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence, we may approach God, all of us, black or yellow or white or brown or anything in between. Whether you know your heritage and background or you don't, or you don't care, that God has made a way for all of us to be right with Him, irrespective of our ethnic heritage in skin color. And you say, we talked about this this last week. What difference does it make to describe racial reconciliation as part of the mystery of Christ? What's different this week from last week by calling it a mystery? Well, it reminds us that racial reconciliation doesn't come naturally to us. It's something that if we're going to get or understand or be motivated to, we need it to be revealed to us. In other words, it's a mystery because if God didn't tell us to do it, we never would have. By definition, it requires revelation. It requires a counterintuitive word from outside of ourselves, changing us. Which means three quick practical things before we move to the next point. Number one, that we should really expect racial reconciliation to be hard. We should. It's not natural. Uh, it, it, it should at times feel awkward, even painful. That's normal. Bear up and bear down. Let's not give up because it's hard. Number two, that we need to urge each other to believe this. Because there's always the inertia of the mind and the, the drift of the heart. Where we need to encourage each other, as Paul does in the way that he says his calling is to make plain this mystery to all those that he encounters. That we encourage each other to persevere in our obedience to the gospel in this respect of Christian discipleship. 
That the themes and the challenges and the practical solutions of getting together in community, in interrelated, mutually dependent, making a place for one another, we belong to each other like a body and a family reconciliation needs to be in our conversations constantly. That just as much as we talk in our Christian growth about the necessity of spending time in the Word or communicating with God in prayer or growing in our life, in our work, in the way that we use our gifts and our calling to love neighbor and our involvement in the church, that in the mix of all these more typical things, that we ought to be engaging with the challenge and the call to racial reconciliation. And number three, that Paul calls this a mystery means that racial reconciliation does not happen automatically. It must be labored for, even fought for. You see in verse 8 and 9, Paul says that he's called to explain this vision to everyone he encounters, Gentile and Jew and everyone else. But specifically, he's compelled and called to pursue Gentiles with intentionality. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And that this idea that there is no fruitfulness in reconciliation without sacrificial intentionality. Is there someone of a particular ethnic background with whom you need to start building a friendship? Or someone of a different racial heritage whom you need to approach and foster a more reconciled relationship, remembering that just because you quote-unquote get along does not mean that you are reconciled in the way that the gospel calls us to be. Or the way, the way that you as a participant in this community can intentionally labor to provide a more welcoming space for people of all different kinds of backgrounds. Having your antenna up for the ways that we have invisible barriers and divides that separate us. Again, not just formally here in our pews, but even when we leave and dwell and live in our home. The mystery of reconciliation. Secondly, Paul points us to the mystery of grace. The mystery of grace. When Paul describes himself and his calling in this passage, he doesn't exactly use words that you would post on your resume or your LinkedIn page. You know? Verse 2, he talks about, uh, hey, my job is, is to be overseeing the administration of God's grace. In this town, administration sounds like a great, strong uh, word that you can be proud of. Uh, in the Greek, this is talking about Paul as a steward, uh, as someone that's watching someone else's car, a house sitter. He's not the owner of the thing. No big boast. He also says in verse 2, God's grace was given to me for you. I didn't come up with it myself, so I don't get any credit for it. In verse 3, he says, the the mystery was a mystery made known to me by revelation. God had to tell me it because I couldn't figure it out by my own smarts, by my own wits. 
He calls himself in verse 7 a servant of the gospel, which means, of course, he's not a master. He's a servant of the master. Verse 7, he talks about being a servant by the gift of God's grace. It's a gift. Even that lowly position of servanthood was given to him as a gift, not something that he earned. And again in verse 7, the grace was given to me, he says, through the working of God's power, because I am utterly powerless. The mystery of God's grace. All these words that Paul uses to describe himself which can be summed up in this, I am weak. And I am a sinner, he confesses in verse 8. This astonishing phrase, I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. Because Paul was ever aware that he started off his religious career completely on the wrong side of the understanding of the right understanding of God and completely on the wrong side of the beginnings of the church. He was a persecutor of the church, a hater of Jesus Christ, an opponent of the grace of God. He's not being depressingly sadistic or self-deprecating in a falsely humble way. He truly understands that he has already in every way disqualified himself from the favor of God and he daily continues to do the same. Can you confess the same? Not so that you can live in religious depression, but because that's the fuel for the fire of joy and passion in the good news of Jesus Christ. Because to the degree that you understand your sin and to the degree that you throw them onto the fire of the love of God, that's the degree to which the beauty and the boldness and the glory and the power of the mercy and the forgiveness and the passion of God for you begins to burn. That Paul would be able to say, this isn't just decent news, it's good news. This isn't just a few pennies to my account. This is the boundless riches, the insearchable, inscrutable, pick your word, superlative word, riches of Christ. Have you talked about Jesus like that? Maybe not. Maybe because you haven't been calling yourself the less than the least of all the Lord's people because you know your heart. This story of grace, why is it a surprise? Why is it a a mystery that could only be known and believed if God told it to us, if he revealed it to us? And it's simple. It's because we don't believe in grace, not by nature. We live according to these mantras and these scripts in our hearts. No pain, no gain. The early bird catches the worm. What goes around comes around. Don't you deserve a break lately? Deep in our hearts, we believe, we really do believe 
that God only loves the strong. And that God only uses for His purposes the celebrity. And that God only shows favor and blessing to the impressive. Not so, says the Apostle Paul. Here's the mystery of grace. God loves sinners. God loves people that have no use at all in the kingdom of God except that God makes you useful by His equipping grace. That God loves you in all your frailty, in all your weakness, not because He looks past it, but because He looks at you. Not because He calls you to edit your story and only bring the good parts to Him and to others, but because He loves you. Glorious and flawed you. Made in God's image and sinful you. Sinner saved by grace you. That's the person He has loved and shown mercy to. But we have to retrain our hearts to believe in grace. And it is a fight, isn't it? It is a fight to believe in the weakness and the foolishness of the cross. Because it all started there, didn't it? Jesus set the paradigm and the tone that beauty would be achieved by ugliness, that life would be purchased by a death, that glory would be given through shame on the cross, that forgiveness would be offered by judgment paid in full, not by you, but by Him, your Savior. The mystery of grace. Thirdly, the mystery of the church. The mystery of reconciliation, the mystery of grace, the mystery of the church. You know, Paul tells us the reason that he preaches the mystery of the Gentiles' inclusion in the covenant family in verse 10. He tells us why he does this. Why is he laboring? Why is he uh, working so hard to bring this mystery of the gospel to the ends of the earth, to people even in the face of opposition? He tells us in verse 10, because God's intent was that now, through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? Okay, a couple points of clarification. First, who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? They're angels, both good ones and bad ones, also known as demons. Heavenly beings that we don't see. He's reaching out for a vision that works far beyond what our human eyes can normally see, even in this room. Hold that thought. Second, the word manifold wisdom means multi-sided or multi-colored wisdom. The same word was actually used in the Old Testament to describe Joseph's famous coat of many colors, manifold coat. In the book of Genesis. So here's what Paul is saying. If you're part of the church. Part of your job. Part of your function. Part of your intent. Is to declare. And to demonstrate. 
to the heavenly beings. How amazing is the wisdom of God that he figured a way out to get you to sit in a pew together. That to the reconciled church, he might be able to say that you are a cosmic testimony to the wisdom of God and that our unity and reconciliation across racial and cultural barriers, that unity preaches to angelic beings about the power, wisdom, and glory of God who has made us one. As one commentator put it, the heavenly hosts are to look at those of us in the church with all our sin, with all our differing personalities and cultural prejudices and color differences and say, how did God do that? How did he get such difficult and disagreeable creatures together in one body to praise him? The manifold wisdom of the creator God really is great. So that by the character and quality of your relationships, by the solidarity solidarity that you share, not only in the surface harmony that you have with other kinds of people, but the repentance and forgiveness and bearing of wounds and honest conversations and living room chat and kitchen table conversation and being in each other's fridges and medicine cabinets, and homes, and sometimes even bedrooms, that kind of unity in family and body community would be a testimony and a billboard to all the cosmos that God is truly great. That the news would go viral Did you see how he pulled that off? Those people, do you know what's in their hearts? Have you seen their histories, their past? That group, no way. Which is so important for us to understand. Because most of us only think of this gathering, the church, as this nasty, broken down old thing. With all our cynicism and perhaps with our just criticism at times. But also because we only have eyes that can only see this far. Human eyes. That we don't see how far this mission truly runs. Not only deep, deep, deep into this heart. But way, 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 way up there. That there's an eternal scope. There's something eternal at stake, dear friends, right now to how you and I love each other. Your conversations are significant. Your relationships have glory and weight to them. There are implications for heaven. 
That every time you interact even casually and even passingly with a person of another racial group and you're just starting to break in in another way, you're a billboard to heaven of the wisdom of God. Then every time your neighborhood groups develop a new kind of intimacy and you look around the room and you say, hey, look at this, we're not all the same, you are a billboard to heaven for the wisdom of God. That every time you let the tears flow and you bear your heart saying, this is how hard it really is to be me in this church, perhaps, and certainly in life. To share stories, not about, not only about yourself, but also about the people that you identify with. To speak honestly and sometimes even perhaps harshly because it's true and that's how it feels in your head and heart. You are there, even there even in the rough patches, becoming a billboard to the heavens of the wisdom of God. And when you forgive, once you hear these things and you talk it through on the other side and you listen and you work through it and you develop a love for another people, not because it's your burden to bear, not naturally, but supernaturally because it is because that other person is your brother, your sister. And slowly, what was once exclusion is becoming now embrace that tiny, mundane, almost forgettable interaction has become a billboard to the heavens of the glorious, eternal, impossible wisdom of God. And you get this perspective, do you see, friends, how petty it starts to sound to always be asking, am I comfortable? Is this easy? Do we have to hear about this again? (laughs) Different scope. Different scope. Lastly and quickly, the the mystery of suffering. Paul points us to the mystery of reconciliation, the mystery of grace, the mystery of the church, and now the mystery of suffering. Because he reminds us that gospel ministry of all kinds, it really is costly. You know this. It hurts to love. You got to open wide your heart, make yourself vulnerable. You have to let yourself be wounded sometimes to truly love, to truly reach out of all kinds but especially in the love of racial reconciliation to remember at this time that it does come at a cost. What are you not willing to give up for the sake of reaching across that divide? Or what might God be calling you to let go of? Some privilege, some comfort, something that you thought was indispensable to your existence in the church or in life, but maybe that by the grace of God you might be able to let go in order that you might be able to bring in, to let go that you might bring into your life another brother, another sister, not like you. Because the cost is suffering, and Paul tells us in verse 1 and at the very last verse as well, because this kind of is his main point of this passage. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And you see that dash right after Gentiles. It's because he interrupts himself and goes on for 12 more verses in this rambling thing about who he is. Why? Because he just mentioned that he's in prison. 
And he wants to explain a little bit of context to the Ephesian Christians why that's so and how he wants them to feel about it. He's in prison, house arrest, as he's writing this letter. And do you know why? What was he accused of? Reaching out to someone from the wrong race. Bringing a Gentile unlawfully into the temple courts. Paul bears suffering and cost, but he tells the Ephesians, it's worth it because it's for your glory. You see, he completes his thought in verse 13. When after telling about his identity as a servant and a steward, less than the least of all God's people and explaining the mystery of reconciliation and the call that he has in bringing people to an understanding of the cosmic implications of our relationships, he sums it all up this way in verse 13. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Don't be discouraged or depressed that my life is so beat up because I lay down my life in order to help produce glory. And that makes it all worth it. Glory in you in the way that God is changing you. Glory in the church in the way that he's bringing you together and showing his manifold wisdom, multicolored wisdom, not only to the world, but also to the heaven of heavens. And glory to Christ who paid it all and purchased for himself a manifold people. Sometimes it helps to endure trial and trouble and pain when you know the gain far outweighs the pain. And to see the fruit of all that Paul was suffering for and to know that he can anticipate even more when Christ returns, the inheritance of the saints. Paul says, I've done it. And I would do it all over again. Are we learning to talk that way and think that way and feel that way in the face of pain that comes as the price of love? But it's a mystery because no normal human being talks like that. But some do when their lives have been radically turned right side up by the radical love of Jesus who suffered so, assumed the price of hell itself upon himself in order that he might have you and in having you join you in relationship with others around you. For your good and reconciliation And for his glory as the reconciler, let's glorify him and let's pray. And so we ask that you would do these things.
opening our minds and our hearts to these mysteries, the great mystery of the gospel. And that you would be touching all parts of our lives, Lord Jesus, to show us now how to live and walk and respond. We so do need you because as we've confessed, none of this is secondhand nature to us. None of this is instinctive. We need to be retrained by your spirit, repatterned in our minds and in our hearts and in our behaviors. But we thank you already, Spirit of God, for doing that work in us. Evidence of fruits already in our community and in our lives. All glory goes to you for the past, for the present, and for the future, what you promise you will do. Glory to you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.